raise our hand in prayer to the Lord. Lord, we confess, whether we know it or not, that we are weak. Our wills are fragile. Our perspective is so limited. Our hearts so prone to wander. And yet, Lord, we look to you as our strength and as our refuge. We know that your love is abounding. You have made known your way to Israel and to Moses. You are merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We look to you as our stronghold, as the one who upholds us, preserves us, who strips us of our doubts and gives us confidence that your word is true and that Christ is true and our hope is certain. And so we look to you this morning to encourage us. May your name be lifted on high and may we be drawn to you in faith. I just pray that those here who are discouraged and broken would be mended and made whole and you would restore. So, Lord, we look to you. We thank you. Will you speak now for your name's sake and for the sake of your people whom you have bled and died for and rose again in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. You can be seated. And our children's, our church is not going to be dismissed at this time. It is family communion this morning. We have the, the tables here set and... One of the reasons we do that is because we believe the family is important in worship and we want our kids to see us taking communion and learn and worship with us. And so we set aside one um, Sunday every other month to do that together. So that's what we're doing. I want to invite you, if you have scripture with you, to turn to the book of Philippians. We're going to be looking at just one verse this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, it will be on the slide behind me so you can see it. But it's Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. And uh, while you're turning there, I wanted to just make a comment on um, what happened yesterday. Um, Almost all of you know that we had a huge rummage sale uh, yesterday. And um, this last week, we had this place packed with your stuff. And not only this place, but the coffee room and our storage facility. And then on Friday night, we took it all out there. And um, at the end of the day yesterday, the people of Parkway Community Church selling their junk uh, made almost $12,000. So... That's, that's the Lord, that's right. The Lord gets the, the praise for that. It's interesting, that's the most we've ever made from a rummage sale in an economy that's not so good. Um, so we can give thanks to the Lord for that. That goes to our tutoring ministry, um, and it will, I hope and pray, bear eternal fruit. But I wanted to just uh, thank one person and then all of you um, for laboring yesterday. Um, we don't normally honor people on a Sunday morning because we want honor and praise to go to God. But I think in some t- sometimes you have to stop and just say, hey, you know what? We honor God by honoring a person um, because of the way God's used them. So um, there's one person who has spent more time on this uh, rummage sale than anybody else, took a week of vacation. And um, I don't want to embarrass you, brother, but Ron Guffey, we are so thankful to God for you for what you did. And, and to his wife, who had to deal with him while he was... <laughs> he, he called me this morning, and he sounded like he was on the edge of death. And, and he said, because he, he was exhausted, I mean, a, a tough week, but he asked me, he says, will you make sure and just say thank you to those who came out yesterday? And so on behalf of him, I'm saying thank you for those of you who came and labored. If you came, and I've heard this from everybody who participated, it was fun. And it it felt like community. It just didn't look like community. It felt like community. Um, At one point, I stopped running around, and I just kind of did a 360, and I looked at the different personalities and people of Parkway and how they were serving and sorting clothes and and making salsa and selling salsa and taking money and giving change and carrying stuff to the cars. And I just thought, wow, this is kind of what it's about, and watching people interact and mingle not only with each other but also with the community. It was just... I was blessed. It was definitely a high point yesterday. I went home worshiping the Lord, and so it was a great time. I, I thought to myself, seeing all the different personalities, watching Brad Flynn like hold up a yardstick, you know, waving it in, in the in the air, saying, "Hey, get your children corrector right here." <laughs> I just thought to myself, "Wow, you know, Parkway is just an interesting place with just family, with such texture and color, and beautiful." So it was a good time being the family of Christ together. So thank you all for being a part of that. Um, we're in uh, 
middle of a four-part series, and this is number two, and it's called The DNA Factor, and it's just a fancy way of trying to isolate, talk about, and drive deep into our soul and to the, hopefully the culture of Parkway. The central core ingredients of what it means to be and do the church, to be the family of God. Um, and we have drawn out and we will draw out four key DNA strands that I believe must be in every church that calls itself Christian for it to be, for it to be distinctively and healthily Christian. And we look at a, another one of these this morning, the second. Let me just say just a brief word of prayer as I open this word. Lord, will you please just guide our minds and hearts, and will you take this truth and help us to know it with our minds but also sink it into our affections. May we value and live this out. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. A game I used to play with my, my two older ones. We had a, one of those therapeutic hot tubs at one point. My kids didn't know how to s- swim, but they knew how to stand up in the hot tub. And we'd play this game called uh, How Long Can You Hold Your Breath? And uh, we would hyperventilate to oxygenate the system. I mean, that's what I learned to swim team as a kid. Get a bunch of oxygen and you can hold your breath longer. So we did that. And one at a time, we'd go underneath the water in the hot tub and, and we'd see how long you could hold your breath. So if I went under, my kids would start counting. And if they went under, we'd start counting. And I swear they counted slower when I went under. <laughs> but um, it's an interesting thing holding your breath because, you know, at first, the first 10, 20, 30 seconds, it's not so bad. But the more your body starts to consume those little oxygen molecules, the more you feel this, this compulsion to breathe, but you know you're holding on and you can feel the oxygen leaving. You can feel lightness of head and, um, and you feel a sense of panic, a sense of anxiety, and you wonder, can I do it one more second? And you pop up and you get a big old huge gasp of air. I think the longest I ever made it was two minutes, and I almost died doing that two minutes because <laughs> I, I had no air left. But it's interesting, just thinking about the concept of, of breath. You know, we're doing it right now, and we're not even thinking about it. Thank the Lord that you don't have to make a decision to breathe. You do it automatically. Um, it's part of the way God designed us, that we don't have to think consciously that, oh, I better take a breath now or I'll die. But he made us so that we constantly breathe. I mean, the moment you were born, you started breathing, and you haven't stopped if you're live here today, you haven't stopped breathing. You're taking breaths in, even as you hear my words. Now you're thinking about it, but, <laughs> but we've been doing it. It's, it's second nature. Breathe in, breathe out. And it's a, that's obvious to all of us. But it struck me as I was thinking about this whole concept of breath, and you'll see where I'm going with this in a moment, that everything alive on planet Earth, every living cell, everything, needs air. That is, it breathes in its own distinctive ways. Mammals breathe, reptiles breathe, birds breathe, fish breathe, trees breathe, plants breathe. Leaves need to take in carbon dioxide, right, and, and to feed themselves and turn it into energy. So in one sense, every living thing breathes, and when it stops breathing, it dies. That's why when you put something in a plastic bag, it dies because it can't breathe. And I thought to myself, what an ingenious stroke of divine brilliance that when God gave himself a name in the opening chapter of the Bible, the name was breath. And that's what the word spirit means in both ancient languages of biblical Hebrew and Greek is, is it means breath. So Genesis 1, 1 through 3 says that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over, hovered over the waters and said, let there be light. That is, God's breath hovered over creation, and in a sense breathed, and then the creation came to life and breathed in response, and it's been breathing ever since. And then chapter 2, we find that God's breath comes on a lump of clay and breathes life into it, and it becomes this living being called Adam or, or man. So that God breathes and things come to life. And his breath is called the Spirit. When you come to the New Testament, Jesus came to die and to rise again so that he could once again give God's breath to his people, his Spirit, so that he could awaken dead hearts and he could regenerate and he could cause us to be born anew 
I mean, that's why Jesus came, to give us a new saving breath of God, the spirit of the living God. And just as, and this is the point of this particular little message, just as our physical body needs physical breath to survive, this breathing in and out constantly, so the Christian life is sustained by that taking in and out, that breathing, that dependence upon the breath of God or the Spirit of God. That one of the core factors that makes the church healthy and powerful and able to carry out the purposes of Christ is that we live moment by moment, day by day, week by week, month by month, trusting in and depending upon the Spirit of God, not just once in a while, but all the time. And that's the challenge of the Christian life is to learn to live in and by and depending on the Spirit each moment. Now, most of us probably have a bit more of a holding your breath approach to the Spirit of God. You come on Sunday and you're reminded, oh, I need to trust in the Lord. It's like taking a big gasp of air. Then you enter your week and you're holding that air and you're not depending in the moments by moments on the Spirit of God. And pretty soon you find yourself out of breath and you find yourself constricted and anxious and panicky because you have no air left. And then the next Sunday you come back and go, oh, there it is again. That's not how the church is to live. Breathe in and out. Each moment, that's, we are to live in the Spirit just like that. Each moment, each day, to live upon Him. That is a distinctive mark of the church and one of the core DNA of the family of God. It's not only that we delight and declare the glory of Christ, but we depend on and we display the works of the Spirit in our lives, the breath of God. Now that's the point. But I want to develop that or do three things with that truth. I want to ground it in the, the Word of God, because if it's not grounded in the Word, then you shouldn't embrace it. Second, there are some specific applications of that truth that I think we should hear. And finally, I'm going to end with what I think is the greatest evidence or, or expression of the fact that you're depending upon the Spirit moment by moment, day by day, week by week. Because you could ask a question, well, how do I know if I'm depending on the Spirit? And that's the third part is to answer that question. So let me stop, pause, and ground this in the Word of God itself. For most of you, this is not new information. You know that the Spirit is important. This is a given. But I think sometimes we lose the prominence of this truth in the clutter of all of our thinking. That is, oftentimes we just don't know what are the really important things. Jesus was able to isolate what are the really important things. And this, I believe, is one of them. In addition to that, just knowing that we're supposed to be dependent upon the Spirit is far different than actually living on the Spirit day to day. So let me just show you in the Word of God that this is indeed one of the core DNA of the family of God. Now I've chosen Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, because Paul sums up what makes Christianity distinctive in one verse. So I'm going to read it for you, and actually I'm going to back up um, to verse 1, which is not on the slide behind me. And I want you to listen to the flow. He's talking to the church. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. You notice how important repetition is because we forget so easily. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. And he says, watch out for those dogs. He's talking about people, not exactly a, I don't know beautiful term to be called. But watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. And then here's verse 3. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Verse 2, when he says watch out for the dogs, he's talking about a false form of religion. That's a Christless Judaism is what he's talking about. In verse 3, contrast, and he says, no, this is what the true people of God are all about. And this verse kind of breaks itself down into a heading, followed by three descriptive phrases. The heading declares who we are. That is, we are the circumcision. 
Circumcision in the Old Testament was that mark that showed that you were a part of the people of Israel, part of the covenant community, God's inheritance, God's precious and prized possession. Only here he's using it figuratively. He's saying, we are the true people of God. That's the heading. He's talking to us. We are the true people of God. And then he goes on to give the three descriptive phrases. He sums up what makes it distinctive. One, who worship by the Spirit of God, and that's our focus, that first one. Who worship by the Spirit of God. That's the first thing he says. talks about the Spirit. Second, who glory in Christ Jesus. And that's what we talked about last week. The crucial, central DNA, important core commitment of the church is its exaltation and faith in Jesus Christ. So he says, we glory in Christ, in his cross, in his resurrection, in his exaltation, in his sovereignty. We glory in Christ. That was last week's message, to delight in display the glory of Christ. And any church that diminishes the centrality and the supremacy of Jesus is a church that has mutated. It is a church that is less than what it should be. Christ must remain central. That's that second phrase there and core DNA. The third phrase is just a reversal of the first two. That is, the church is to put no confidence in the flesh. That is anything human. And that entails a lot of stuff from not trusting ultimately in presidents or in institutions or governments, parents, pastors, or even the fortitude of our own inner strength or our own strength of will. We don't trust in any of those things at all. Rather, we glory in Christ and we worship by the Spirit. And that first one has to do with dependence on the Holy Spirit. So now let me come back to that first one. Who worship by the Spirit of God. Of God. Now most of us, when we think of worship, we tend to think about what's happening right now. In this room, we sing some songs. There's a scripture reading prayer. Sing some more songs. Have some prayer. Listen to the message. And that's worship. And that narrow view of worship is why some of our kids don't ever want to go to heaven because they think it's going to be an eternal church service. But Paul doesn't have that in mind here. Now, this is a part of what it means to gather in worship. It's part of worship. But that's not what he has in mind. The worship in Paul's thinking and his theology is a exhaustive, comprehensive, and it is a universal activity of life that includes absolutely everything. You don't go to work and serve a different God and come to Sunday morning and worship Christ. Everything is to be lived as worship to God, which is why he could say, you know, Work with all of your might for your employer as unto the Lord because you're doing it for him. So every activity of life from getting up in the morning, going to, going to work, being at work, doing your work, coming home, um, playing with your kids, going on vacation, eating, drinking, everything is to be done as unto him, which means both you enjoy him in it and also you glorify him in it as well. You make and exalt him in every activity of your life. That is your desire. That is what you're supposed to do. Worship is universal. It should cover everything you do. Romans 12, 1 and 2, where he says, um, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, pleasing and acceptable. This is your spiritual act of, of worship. Well, if you offer your body as a living sacrifice, that's everything in life. That's worship. Everything you do, every activity, career, it's all to be lived that way. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, where he says, uh, whatever you eat, or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Everything. That's all inclusive. That's his idea of worship, and that's the Christian life. Everything we do, we live to enjoy and also to exalt Christ. And the only way you can do that is living day by day, moment by moment, breathing in and out and living in dependence on the Spirit of God. The Spirit's the only one who can actually enable us to worship with all of life and enjoy and exalt Christ. Spirit is the means by which we do that, and we depend upon him. So there is the grounding in Scripture. And actually, I should just go on and say, you know, I was, I was perusing all the different things that are said of the Spirit in the New Testament this last week. I looked at every occurrence of Spirit, and it was amazing to me how many different things he does. In fact, he is sufficient for every activity of life and every circumstance of life. 
Here are just a few. He is a counselor. He counsels us. He guides us in truth. He leads us. He reveals. He illuminates. He convicts. That he raises from the dead. He awakens, revives, and renews. He washes. He sanctifies. He produces fruits of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. That he is our deposit. He is the guarantee of the hope set before us. And he is a foretaste of what's to come. And he is our fellowship with Christ. Our direct uplink to communion with Christ is his spirit. So that we commune with Christ in and through and upon his spirit. We're so often given to the mistake of so dissecting the Son of God from the Spirit of God that we think they're two completely different individuals. Now, they're distinct, to be sure, but they're also one. So where one communes with the strength of the Spirit, you're communing with the strength of Christ. Where you're communing in the truth of the Spirit, you're communing with the truth of Christ. Where you're communing with the love of the Spirit, you're communing with the love of Christ. They are one and the same, in essence. So he is our fellowship with Christ. So we depend upon him for everything in times of suffering, in times of joy. Whatever your situation or conflict is, that he is sufficient for that very thing. You know, we often come up, we have this little statement we say about people who know a lot about a lot of things but don't know a lot about one thing. It's, you know, he's a jack of all trades and master of none um, because you know a lot but not really a master of any one discipline. Spirit's not like that. He's not a jack of all trades and master of none. He's a jack of all trades and he is a master of every one of them. Counselor, as one who strengthens you, as one who gives wisdom, as one who protects you. So all of life is to be lived in dependence upon the spirit of the living God. That's another way of saying that we live by grace alone, through faith alone, and the power of Christ alone. That's the biblical grounding here in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. This is supposed to be at the heart of the church, Christ and his spirit. Now let me take this and apply it in some distinctive ways that I think hit some of the needs of our congregation. I'm going to do it in three ways. The first application of this is a warning and a danger that I see, and I've seen it and experienced it in my own life, and I see it in this congregation. It's an infection. And the infection is this. Here's the warning. Be very careful about transferring your dependence upon God to dependence upon the methods of men or the means. There is this subtle, unconscious temptation to transfer one's faith, the base of one's life, from the author of grace to the means of grace. It's very easy, and I think many have done it, not just individuals, but also as churches. It's what the devil wants to do, is to transfer our faith from God or the Spirit of God to a means of getting something done, because we gravitate towards methods and means. Now, what do I mean by that? Here's some examples, one from my life. Now, what I'm about to say may sound a bit arrogant. It's actually a confession. I have spent a lot of money and time in undergraduate, graduate, and some postgraduate courses learning this thing we call the science of interpreting the Bible, hermeneutics, grammar, syntax, biblical theology, genre, biblical languages of Hebrew and Greek. And so you get all this training as to how to rightly divide the word of truth, which is extremely important. And I believe wholeheartedly that we should do our best to learn how to best and accurately interpret the scripture. I'm not against the method. But here's what has happened in my life. I come out of the education thinking, okay, I know how to do this. I know the method. And so you open up the scripture, and it's a little bit like taking a potato. Have you ever seen inside the In-N-Out Burger where they take the, the peeled potato and they put it in this thing? And the big handle comes down and you have fries, 
right? It's really cool. Just stick a potato in there and fries come out. Well, here's what I have done. Take a text of scripture, stick it in the potato puller thing. This is called my interpretive method. Good. Kapunk, and out comes the interpretation. But it becomes a mechanical exercise, and easily you can depend upon the method of interpretation rather than the spirit of God guiding you into the truth. And then you're inadvertently putting your trust not in the spirit of God to guide you as the master teacher and interpreter of the Bible. Paul tells us he's the, he is the one who illuminates the truth, 1 Corinthians 2. And then you depend upon the method. And that is not only unhealthy, it's idolatry. The same thing happens not just with methods, but people that God uses as means. It can happen to a pastor, counselor, therapist. Now, does God use pastors, counselors, and therapists to help people? Well, I sure hope so. Otherwise, I might as well pack my bags and go home, find another job. I hope he does. But it's really easy for people who are ministered to by those means to transfer their dependence from the Spirit of God working through those means to the means themselves, which is why a lot of people in church fall away when a pastor falls because they have transferred their dependence from God himself to the pastor or counselor or therapist. Be careful about trusting in either the methods or the means of people that God uses. Or I'll give you one more, and that is models for doing things. Not models as in supermodel, but, you know, like models of doing business or doing ministry or uh, models for financial investment and so forth. Models. It's interesting how easily we gravitate towards trusting in humanly created models of doing things. When we were pregnant with my son, Daniel, I should say we were pregnant. My wife was pregnant with my son, Daniel. We were reading the Ezo books. Remember back in the 90s? Uh, was that Growing Kids God's Way? Or, yeah. And you know, there's a lot of people who got on that bandwagon. It's not bad stuff. But there's a temptation to think, if we do it this way, out's going to come John the Baptist. <laughs> and my kid's going to live for the Lord. He's going to be the next, you know, Jonathan Edwards. And you end up trusting in the kachunk method or model of parenting. And you don't realize the model itself is not what changes people. The same thing happens to churches. Plant a church in a community called Saddleback. Takes off mushrooms and everybody goes, how did you do it? Pretty soon a book is written, a label is given to it. Everybody tries it and they're wondering, why didn't it work for my church? Because you have transferred your dependence upon the Spirit of God doing the work in your community to a method or a model. So we, we do that all the time. It's just we easily transition our dependence on the Spirit, breathing in and out, knowing He's the one that makes it happen, to depending upon either methods or, or men, women, or in models of doing things. And in, and in essence, we become idolaters and we stop trusting in the Lord in our midst. So... I just say that because I think everybody here, including myself, I have fallen to this. It's easy to do. It's unconscious almost to transition or transfer my faith into something human and not divine. In contrast to this verse, we don't put confidence in human strength, but we worship or live out our lives dependent upon the Spirit of God. That's, that's one application. It's a warning. Just guard your heart. Be sure, ask the Spirit, is my heart centered on you or am I depending on a man or a method or a model? Because I want to depend on the Spirit. That's where the power is found, and that's one of the DNA of the church. Here's another one. It has to do with guidance in life. Every one of us faces situations and circumstances in which we have to make decisions. Some of them are positive. Some of them are we're dealing with negative stuff. We're wondering, how do I do this? How do I negotiate the conflict? How exactly am I going to... um, parent my, my son or daughter, um, or if you're younger, what, what career field should I choose? What am I going to do with my life? We all face decisions. How do we make those decisions? 
Now, the only infallible directives that I know of that the Spirit gives to his people is here found in Scripture. And we know if it's here that that's his will for our lives. But the Scriptures don't oftentimes give the specifics of time, place, and how. The Bible doesn't tell you who to marry, whether you should go into ministry, law, or teaching. It doesn't give you that. So how do you make that decision? How do you know whether it's time to confront somebody about a sin or it's time to wait and see? How do you know, and I can argue both sides. It's like, well, if I do this, then this could happen, and if I don't do that, this could happen. So which do I choose? Well, I believe that if we seek and are willing to wait and seek and wait for God to give guidance, the Spirit of God to give guidance, that he will lead, he will guide, and he will confirm things in our life. He might do it through counsel of a brother or sister. He might do it through a work of providence, in which case you see one door close and another one open. But I believe that the Spirit of God, if we're willing to wait and seek for his guidance in that decision, he will guide And he will direct and he will give that inner confirmation that this is the right way to go. A lot of us, however, tend to bypass that route and depend upon what I will call conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom is common sense. It's it's what everybody else does. It's what's the accepted way of doing things. And so there's a decision to be made about finances or or a choice in the future, and we make it purely on the conventional wisdom. Now, conventional wisdom is not bad, provided it is confirmed by the leading of God's Spirit. The problem with conventional wisdom is that you look through the Bible, and oftentimes God leads his people and guides his people to do unconventional things. And if you are If you are confined to a conventional wisdom, then you may not be willing to go where he wants you to go. That God oftentimes chose the second born to receive the blessing, not the first born, which broke ancient convention. When he guided the people of Israel out of Egypt, he didn't take them the conventional route. He led them through the Red Sea. When he asked his people to assault the walls of Jericho, they didn't do it with battering rams. He said, you just march around seven times and then blow your horns. Unconventional. And then the the most amazing unconventional thing God ever did, namely he, he saved us by having his son hang on a tree, which was to Greeks foolishness and to a Jew completely blasphemous. But God asks us to do things sometimes in unconventional ways. Unless you're open to that, you may not go that direction. I think many of us are are very much tied to conventional wisdom, and we are not open to waiting, seeking, and depending on the Spirit to provide that guidance, that leadership, and that confirmation that this is the direction. Example came to my mind this last week was uh, Jim Elliott. We've been we studied him a couple months ago at our missions conference. Um, he is, for those of you who weren't here, he's the the missionary who was killed in Ecuador back in the 50s. But as I've read his journals, one thing that popped out was his view of marriage. So he goes to Wheaton, and he meets this girl that he falls in love with named Elizabeth. This is 1947. He falls in love with her. But he is so committed to not marrying if it would diminish his effectiveness in the jungle that he won't marry if it's going to diminish his effectiveness. So he loves this girl. But he's not willing to marry if it's going to compromise. Now, on the one hand, that's amazing because it shows that he was really, truly sold out to Christ even more than the desire to be fulfilled with a companion or in marriage. So he was more committed to Christ than he was even to his own personal fulfillment. But in addition to that, he would not marry her until God said, okay. So for six years... This guy's in love with her. He's corresponding with her, but he knows, I am not going to marry her unless the Lord says, okay. And then six years later, 1953, 
after seeking the Lord, and he had scripture memorized, he had the scripture in his head, but he was waiting for the Lord to confirm the direction. And the Lord said, okay. And he married her. And as a result of that, she was in Ecuador. She carried on his work, and a tribe was one. You can see the wisdom in it from hindsight. Now, that's unconventional. You know how it was at my college? You see a pretty girl who's single, and you're single, She's good-looking, you're good-looking, at least in each other's eyes, and you fall in love. Hey, listen, you're a girl, I'm a guy. That's important these days. You're a Christian. Two major checks, I'm in love with you, let's get hitched tomorrow. I mean, that's it, conventional wisdom. You're in love, you're a Christian, you're single, get, get married. We rarely just stop and say, you know what, I'm going to wait for the Lord to give confirmation on this. I'm going to seek his leading. But that's, I think, because we overly depend upon conventional wisdom and we're not willing to just seek and wait. All right, God, I'll move when you want me to move. And I'm going to scour the scriptures. I'm going to seek counsel. But I am not going to move until you tell me to move, trusting that he'll guide you. That's depending on the spirit for guidance in life. So be careful. Let God guide you. The spirit guide you. And then one final one that is very important is we need to depend upon the Spirit completely to change people, not us. Can't tell you how many marriages have been ruined by failure to get this or relationships between parents and children. Ultimately, the heart is the domain of God. But we want to change people and will oftentimes assert our influence to try and change people in ways that cause either frustration condescension, guilt, anger, blowout, and things disintegrate because we're controlling things. Wives do it to husbands. Husbands do it to wives. Parents do it to kids. Kids do it to parents. Pastors do it to congregants, and congregants do it to pastors. We try to change each other. Now, we are to act responsibly and loving towards one another and, you know, rebuke when we need to rebuke and confront and encourage and love and comfort and those kinds of things. But in the end, it has to be open-handed and say, Lord, the Holy Spirit is the one in charge of your life and your growth and your transformation, not me. So I'll do what I've been called to do and I, I release you. I think that's what Paul had in mind in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says that love trusts all things to the Spirit of God. And that allows us to live in relationships that say, hey, I'm going to trust the Spirit with your life and, and I, I want you to trust Him with mine. He is going to work. We're going to let Him do that work. It takes, makes us a lot more patient in our relationships with each other. So here you have just three particular applications of this. We are to, like, breathing in and out, depend upon the Spirit of God each day. We are not to depend upon means, men, or models. We should seek his guidance rather than just depending upon on conventional wisdom. And we've got to trust him to change not only our own lives but other people's lives as well. That's what it means to depend day by day on the spirit of God. Now let me finish with one final question. How do we know that we are living day by day in dependence upon the spirit? And I think the prime and main expression of a day-by-day dependence is in your prayer life. Where there is dependence, there is a desperation and a desire to pray because, I mean, we do it as humans on a human level all the time. If you're dependent on your dad, you're calling him constantly. If you're dependent upon on the government, you're going to call whoever the social worker is all the time to figure out where's my money and so forth. You call who you're dependent upon. And the heart that is truly dependent is going to be constantly calling out to the Lord. I think that's probably what, why Paul could say, I, I pray without ceasing, because he knew how desperate he was, how weak he was, and how great the Lord was. So he was constantly saying, okay, help me in this, help me in that. I need this, I need that. So how do we study the Bible and depending upon the Spirit? We study the Bible using all those methods, but we do so depending upon the Spirit. Teach me, O Lord, your ways and your truth. Don't just teach my mind, but teach my heart. So you find yourself in Bible study constantly praying, 
How do we worship independence? Well, as we're singing our songs, we're not just singing the songs. We're singing the songs and praying, Lord, help me to worship you in spirit and in truth and to see more of who you are. Right now you're listening to the message and you should be listening with a prayerful spirit. Lord, please, will you just feed my soul with your truth and change my life? When you come to communion, you come and you hold up the bread and the cup and you pray, Lord, please, will you just nourish my soul with the truth of his death and resurrection that I'm forgiven and I'm freed and you love me? How do we parent? Lord, will you help me as I, as, I, as I teach my kid, as I disciple my son or my daughter? Will you help me to do it in a way that will, that will help their soul? And this isn't just true in the spiritual realm because for the Christian, everything is spiritual. How are you going to conduct your business? You conduct your business prayerfully thinking, Lord, I want your will to be done in this business. Whatever your job, whatever your career, it is to be a constant dependence and crying out to the Lord. It becomes a voice. It becomes like breathing in and out. That's what it's supposed to be like. And when you start doing that, you'll know you're walking day by day, trusting in the, in the Spirit of God. And it shouldn't just be an act. It should be an act driven by a desire and a want. I need His help. When, the, when that's there, you pray. You pray. I know you pray sense of desperation and sense of faith. You'll know that you're not just taking a gulp on Sunday, trying to make it through the week only to get one more gulp the next Sunday. But each day, living and breathing and worshiping by the Spirit, that is one of the core truths of the church. And I just pray and hope that God sinks that into each of us, that we will become people that breathe in and out, praying in dependence upon the Lord to guide us to keep us, to change us and transform us. We're going to practice that this morning as we come to communion. And I want you to tune me out here because I know what happens, right, at this point. Everybody kind of close their Bibles. Oh, we're going to communion. What I'd like you to do is as you come forward for communion, and John and the, the band, they're just going to play acoustic stuff this morning. We're not going to do vocal, verbal worship while we take communion. It's because we want you to pray. Not just pray prayers of confession, but ask the Lord as you're taking these things, do it slowly. And just allow the truth of it to soak in and and pray. Lord, will you just once again reconfirm to my soul that this is enough. That I am forgiven and I am loved. And I have hope. And I have your spirit. So we're going to practice that kind of prayerful taking of the Lord's Supper together. And then I'm going to have, and I'm going to spring this on the deacons and elders because they don't know that we're going to do this, but we're going to have, I'm going to ask the deacons and elders to just come down here in the front. And while some of you are coming and taking communion prayerfully, we want to invite those of you who are just struggling. You might be struggling with doubt, pain, whatever the situation is, relationships, emotions. We just want to pray for you. It's part of what it means to be a family of God is to pray for each other. And so we would delight and rejoice in being able to pray over you. So I would just encourage you to throw fear to the wind. If you're struggling with something, just come up. We're going to just gather around and pray for you while other people are taking communion. So as I pray, let me just ask the deacons and elders to come join me. And then we're going to have two small group leaders uh, uh, distribute the bread. And they have washed their hands. So um, let's worship together. Father, I just pray in these moments that we have that your spirit would be at work in our hearts and our minds, um, stripping us of fear and doubt. I pray that you use this bread and this cup to remind us of everything that we have in Christ and that he came to give us a fresh breath of your spirit. So will you just, you take over this time. Will you be our Lord and our King and do what you need to do in people's lives? And um, we just commit this time to you in Christ's name.
This is my daily 